We've been camping in chapter 7, which deals with the, the main subject of carnal marriage. Up to this point, Paul has addressed and applied biblical wisdom to various types of Christians in this church, to celibate Christians, to single Christians, to Christians married to other Christians, and to Christians married to unbelievers, what we call unequally yoked. So that's what he's been doing in chapter 7 all the way up to verse 24. He's been giving this wisdom and this counsel and these insights, this advice, this tr these truths to those types of Christians in this church. And in the final section of chapter 7, Paul addresses one more type of Christian, the betrothed. And what he does in this final section is encourages these couples to follow his instructions in the uh, immediate section that we were just in to essentially remain as they are and to consider several things before they actually tie the knot or to at least put that off for a little while. And I'll tell you what we're going to do here, and it's going to be over the course of a few weeks because this, this, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot to cover. I thought I was going to do it in one sermon. That almost never happens whenever I figure that. But I'll tell you, just, just to, to prime the pump, that we are about to examine, in my humble opinion, this is not like, you know, like all the scholars are saying this. I haven't found anyone else that says this, so I'm probably wrong. But I believe in my humble opinion, my, my opinion that we are about to examine the most comprehensive and compelling argument for singleness anywhere in Scripture. Right now all the marrieds are going, oh no. No, you're okay if you're married. This doesn't mean become single. But this literally is one of the most compelling arguments you'll ever see anywhere for that mode. And, and there's, there's it's, it's not, you need to understand. And so I think some people have looked at what is said here, really in chapter 6 and 7, mostly 7, they've looked at it like, well, this is just Paul's advice. It's not coming from the Lord. This is his preference because we know and we've learned that Paul's preference was singleness. He was a single man. It was his preference. But what you need to understand is that the arguments that he presents or puts forward here for singleness are not based on, I would say, entirely on his preference. That he makes rational, logical, contextual arguments. And it will make much more sense to you as we move through the text over the course of probably a couple weeks. And of course, he's already said several times, if you're married, stay married. If you, right? So this is not like, oh no, what do I do if I'm married? He's, he does here in this text for single people what needed to be done for single people because they have not been viewed right in the church, in the culture. Something wrong with them because they're single. No. You can have a the gift of singleness and be single and live a very satisfied, fulfilled life. Marriage is not the antidote to all our woes and problems. It sometimes brings them in. And you know, I'll always use Jesus as a default. Wasn't married, totally celibate, had an amazing life. Of course, he suffered and died on a cross for us. But are we to think that the Lord did not have an abundant life, that he was trying to, that he had come to, to impart to others through his work, that he was somehow insufficient or deficient because he wasn't married? And of course, some of the cults say he was. He's got children out there somewhere. That's what they say. It's ridiculous. It's blasphemous. The Apostle Paul was a single man and had a quite interesting, amazing life. So much so that Christians married single or whatever really honor and appreciate who he is and are fascinated by what he did. Some could probably make the argument against singleness from Genesis 2 where it talks about it wasn't good for Adam to be alone and so he created from Adam Eve. And we tend to look at that verse as a matter of loneliness. I don't know how anyone could be loneliness with about 8 million animals running around. Adam might have been a cat guy. I don't know. 
I don't think it was about loneliness per se, but God's overarching providential plan was to populate. So he made a woman from him, not just for companionship, but because God had a broader plan than that. And to think that one must be married to kill their single or to, to kill off their loneliness is ridiculous because lonely people, when they get married, tend to still be lonely. So we don't want to look at Genesis 2 like, look, this is God's command. This is what he wants. He wants everyone to be married because if not, it's not good for you to be alone. Who's alone? I've got so many people in my life, I don't know what to do. Right? So I don't think it's a matter of just that. And I don't like how our society, and it was even happening in the first century, that single people were, in a sense, demonized because they were single. And we know that because the majority of Christians are probably married, I don't know, maybe they are, and the churches are filled with married people, that the singles are just kind of left behind sometimes. There's really no acknowledgement to them. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Paul acknowledges them in Scripture unlike anywhere else in Scripture or anywhere else in any other literature. It's a very compelling series of arguments that he makes for that mode in support of those who are single, not to try to persuade those who aren't to change their status. We just studied a passage where he said, do not change your status. So understand the context that this is an amazing text. It's not based just on his preference. It's on context and good judgment. And as I said, this final section is fairly large, so we're going to have to divide it up and deal with it in smaller bits. In totality, this will be probably a three, four, well, it's probably going to be a four or five point sermon, actually, which might end up being individual sermons, every point, like today, because it's, there's just too much to cover, and I don't want to miss anything. Do you want to miss something? I don't. So we'll look at our first point today. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 25 to 28a. I, I think it'd be befitting that we pray once more before we actually dive in and get to work. Father, thank you for your word and how you've led us this morning thus far. We pray that you lead us once again through your word. Be glorified and may we be edified. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll pick up where we left off last Sunday, our first point. I think it's up on the screen. This is, I don't know, should I even be calling these arguments? I don't think so. It's just, it's a point of logic, of good sound judgment, right, pertaining to the things that happen in marriage where it's advantageous for someone to remain single. And so the first one is, Marriage can, and I should say will, but it can because it's not always the case at a higher level, but marriage can increase distress during distressing times. I think anyone who's married in here would say that marriage increases distress no matter what's happening around us because you've now taken two sinners, if they're Christians, hopefully, you know, two sinners saved by grace, put them in the deepest, most intimate human relationship possible, put them under the same roof together, and they're still selfish at times, they're still cruel at times, they're still insensitive at times. I'm really referring to the guys, right? But so, so we already know that marriage can be distressing. There's two people involved. There's two people to be concerned with. And if you have children, it, it ups that even more. But Paul is talking about that here, but his context is distressing times. Now, I think that any one of us could make an argument that marriage is beneficial during distressing times because now we can work together and stick together and encourage each other. That would be equally true. But what he says here is no less true. Let's start in, uh, we see this in the, in the whole text here, 25 to 28a. Let's start in 25a. Because we need to understand who he's talking to. What is the betrothed? What does that mean? He says, now concerning the betrothed, stop there. I've heard people call it betrothed. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. Betrothed, not betrothed. It's like a trough that an animal would eat out of. It's like, what are we doing here? Back to school. Betrothed. 
And the Greek word for betrothed is parthanos, parthanos. And it, it literally means virgin. You might have a translation where it doesn't say betrothed, it says virgin. You have a translation that says that? Get an ESV. No, I'm just kidding. You're okay. You're okay. It, it has that connotation. It can have that meaning. In fact, it appears six times in this passage. I'm talking about the broader passage, not what we're looking at today per se, but the whole thing all the way through the end of the chapter. We see it in verse 26, 28, 34, 36, 37, and 38. Virgin or betrothed, depending on your translation, it shows up that many times. And there are differing opinions on, on the re meaning, you know, regarding the meaning of the word, and they're reflected in various translations. The NASB, NASB, which is a popular one here at the church, and I think it's all MacArthur uses, but it's basically when you see the word virgins or parthanos, it refers to daughters of marriageable age. That's the idea there with the word, daughters of marital age. They're, they've come of age and they can be married. And in that context, it was probably about 14, 15. Whenever uh, a young lady became a woman because she went through the natural process of becoming a woman, you know what I mean. I, I try to be as whatever as I can, discreet. But of course, I keep talking about it and it's like the mind is wandering. So shut up and move on. Daughters of marriageable age. And this was literally the primary view of this particular text. This is how most people looked at it all the way up to about the beginning of the 20th century. He's talked to daughters, virgin daughters who were, could get married. And the NEB is not a Bible I've ever used. I don't know if I'd even heard about it. It's the New English Bible. It says that that word refers to spiritual marriages, not just like physical marriages, but it's referring to spiritual marriages. As in married couples who live under the same roof, they're actually married, they made a covenant together, and they live under the same roof, but they practice celibacy because they viewed sex as sinful, and, and maybe that celibacy was some higher level of spirituality. We actually do see this playing out in the Corinthian church. So it refers to them, and the idea is that if you're in that setting and you burn with passion, go ahead and be with your wife. I mean, that's your wife. Go ahead and, go ahead and sleep with her. But I think Paul's instructions in the beginning of chapter 7 in verses 1 to 5 just totally they mitigate against this view. You know, it's amazing to me that knowledgeable, educated translators come up with this stuff, and there's a verse like three verses before that kind of destroy their argument. It's like, eh. Well, that's not to say that the NAB isn't a legitimate Bible. It just has a different take on this. And maybe that is the view in mine. I don't know for sure. I don't think it is. The ESV and the NIV and the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, pretty good translation, it is, they are referring to engaged couples. That's why we see the word betrothed. Listen to the NRSV rendering of verse 36. Of course, that's a verse we'll look at in the weeks or two, in a week or two, but it, listen to this rendering. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his fiance, if his passions are strong, and notice how it said fiancé, if his passions are strong, let him marry as he wishes. It's no sin at all to do that. That's a pretty good rendering. And, and I think that the, if you boil it down, engaged couples is the preferred, it's the preferred view of most or the majority of commentators. Like the ESV and the NIV and the NRSV are closer to the mark than any of the others. Even the NASB, which might make the NASB people like, get a pitchfork, get him. Mark Taylor wrote, he's a good commentarian, virgins refers to the betrothed young women of marriageable age and that Paul directs his instructions not necessarily to them but primarily toward the men who would take the lead on such matters. That's pretty good insight here on who Paul's writing to and his intent. I agree with Mr. Taylor. I do believe Paul is addressing the virgins in this church who were betrothed and preparing for marriage. So the betrothed is or are the engaged, those who are engaged to be married. 
Just to build more context, in ancient Jewish marriage practices, there were basically four stages. First, there was the pledge or promise. Most families would get together with their children, usually while they were very, very young, maybe even during infancy, and then they would arrange the marriage. You got two babies over here that are close in age, and uh, you are going to be marrying you. And they have no idea what just was decided for them. Arranged marriage. So that's how marriage practice in this day, particularly in the Jewish system, that's how it would begin. Two families would come together and my son is going to marry your daughter. And when the young girl came of age or entered womanhood, the families would come back together again. Not to say that they didn't hang out on weekends beforehand for Super Bowl Sunday, but they would come back together in more of an official way. And, and the young man who was now a young adult and the, and, the, and the girl who was a young adult and certainly more mature than him because they're always four years ahead of us, they would come together and the young man, this is, this is how he would know if she's going to marry him. He would come over and hand her a cup of wine. Right? Some women would have been like, no. <laughs> Can't do that. If you drink it, that means yes. That's what it symbolized. Right? So if she took it and accepted the glass from him and then went ahead and drank it, then she's saying yes, and now the second stage begins, betrothal. For maybe about a year or more, maybe a little less, the engaged couple would obviously live separately. They, they didn't shack up together. They would live separately. And, um, but while being fully committed to each other, like, you know, we're not married all the way yet, but in a way we are, so we need to be true to each other spiritually, we need to be true to each other physically, and these sorts of things. So there was a, a commitment that was made toward one another at the onset of betrothal. But they would still live separately, fully committed to one another. And during that time, during the betrothal stage, the groom would build a home for them under the supervision of his father, right? Thank God this wasn't the system back in my day. My dad would have said, what you just put up, you need to take back down. It's not up to code. <laughs> Who's going to buy the materials? You are. He would build a home. And of course, back then, homes weren't, you know, $550,000 for a 1,200-square-foot, three-bedroom, two-bath. <laughs> they were half that. But he would build a home under the supervision and discretion of his father, and his father would determine when the home was ready, prepared, good to go, and then he would set a date for the wedding. The father would. Okay, you've done a good job on this house. You need to fix that shutter. It's a little crooked, but for the most part, how's July sound? And then during this time, while, while, the, while the, the groom here is, is, is preparing on his end and building the home, the bride was also making preparation. She would be sewing and weaving together rugs and, and, and linens for their home. She would be Ann Filbrin. Getting it done. Fixing Pastor Phil's shirts that are way too long. She'd be getting stuff ready on her end. Both of them would be actively working toward their marriage together. But as I said, they lived apart, separate lives, still with their families, but fully committed. If one was either spiritually or physically unfaithful, the other could end the betrothal through what they called divorce. Is that not what we see in Matthew 1, 18 to 19 with Joseph when he thinks that Mary has gone outside the marriage? And then he has a dream and the angel says, everything's cool. She's with child from the spirit of God. You're good to go. Don't divorce her. You literally had to go through, it wasn't just like a phone call and a breakup. You had to go through a little bit of a process to break this off because families were involved. It was serious. After com you know, completing all the necessary preparations, the families would then come together again to begin stage three, the wedding feast. So this celebration, part of the celebration began with the bride adorning herself. Revelation 19, 7 to 9, 21 and verse 2 talks about the church adorning herself. It's all imagery that's pulled from the culture. And then after getting all dolled up, she and her family would lead a procession with her out front all the way to the groom's house. 
They just marched right through town with her out front, all dolled up, looking good. Family behind her, woo, go Sally! <laughs> and then when they arrived at the groom's house, someone would announce something like, here comes the bride. I wonder if that song that's played at weddings comes from this. Someone would say that, and then the entire place would just erupt in joyful anticipation. Wow, it's the day. Because think about it, they've been building for a year or more and getting everything ready, but this was planned since birth. So there's years and years of thought that go into this. So when she shows up, it's like, whoa. And then the two would be, you know, once she arrived, they would be joined together and brought over to like a makeshift altar or something like that. And then they would hear scripture they would exchange vows. And then when the ceremony concluded, the newlyweds with their families and friends would celebrate with feasting and drinking for no less than one week. No less than one week. I'm thinking as a DJ who does weddings, that's like seven grand for me. <laughs> Babe, I'm not going to be home for a week, but when I get back, it'll be worth it. 7K plus hotel. Right? And then finally... When the time was right, probably toward the end, of, the end of the week of partying and hanging out and feasting and eating great food and drinking good wine. You know, you think of Jesus and the wedding at Cana. That was a week-long celebration. It wasn't a few hours like our weddings today. But at the right time, then the couple would enter the final stage, stage four, consummation. With great fanfare, the groom would come and sweep his bride up off her feet, carry her to their bedroom, and then they would become one flesh and consummate the marriage, thus concluding the wedding feast. But I will say this, when they did this, there would be people all around the door, and it's like, hello, can you get some privacy? It wasn't dirty, it wasn't perverted, it wasn't anything like that, it wasn't pornographic, it was just not a secret what they were doing. People were there like, <laughs> and I'd be like, I can't do anything. It had been weird. But once that's over, the, syrup, the, the wedding feast and the consummation's over, that's it. They live together in covenantal marriage. Point being, Paul's judgment or instructions here are aimed at couples in the second stage, betrothal. People are building homes and she's knitting and sewing and doing these sorts of things. That's the mode they're in. They're getting ready for this. That's who he's talking to. Now verse 25b, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So before he actually gives them his judgment, he says something else here. He kind of prefaces it with, with something here. As in verses 10 and verse 12 of this very same text, the very same passage, what Paul is doing is he's starting off by distinguishing his words from that of the Lord. What he's about to say to the betrothed is, in other words, is not a direct quote or command that Jesus had given during his earthly ministry. It's not coming from something that Jesus taught at the Sermon on the Mount or anywhere else. This is from the apostles' own judgment. Okay, and right there, some modern thinkers will say, then I guess we don't really have to pay all that much attention to it. Well, since the Lord had mercifully, notice the word, mercifully appointed Paul as worthy to render such judgments, what he says is still truthful and authoritative, just like the rest of Scripture. His judgments here that weren't coming directly from Jesus, Jesus' own teachings, they should still be seen as authoritative, but more like authoritative guidelines or even apostolic advice. And they should be seen as thoroughly Dependable, good stuff, good, wise counsel. If Paul wasn't qualified to, to give such advice, it wouldn't be in the scripture here. It's recorded because it's good. It's considered scripture just like everything before it and everything after and the Sermon on the Mount and Deuteronomy and everything else. So we don't want to 
have that weird mindset of, I guess I really don't need to take this serious because it's just his opinion. <coughs> Is it in your Bible? Take it serious. Thomas Schreiner says, Paul is not saying that his own words are inconsequential. His own judgment or opinion is trustworthy. His trustworthy, trustworthiness has its roots in the Lord's mercy and cannot be attributed to his own inherent virtue. Paul speaks, therefore, as one who is inspired and gives authoritative judgments. That is right on point. Now, if the apostle had actually issued an imperative here, if it wasn't a good idea or good advice, authoritative guidelines, something like that, if it was a specific or implicit command, then what happens is everyone who's married is now in sin, and marriage is something that we should not ever engage in. And we know very well that God has never commanded that. We can go back to Genesis 2 and... Paul has been arguing for marriage and arguing for singleness through this entire chapter. So you don't want to look at what he's about to say here as an imperative or a command because now all of a sudden married people are in sin like me and Rachel and everyone, most everyone else in here. Not everyone, but some. And only the singles are going, we finally got them. Right? You know, the marrieds. If he had issued an actual imperative, then... To remain single, then getting married would be a transgression. Now, many bad interpreters of Scripture have actually ran with that idea, believe it or not. And I guess they miss what Paul said prior to this section, and obviously in verse 28a where he says, if you marry, you have not sinned. <laughs> just don't, you just, if you read a little further, Fred, you'll land properly. And they just don't do it. Now let's look at his judgment. Verse 26, here's what he says to the betrothed. This is apostolic advice and it is good. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. He's talking to those who are engaged, who have not yet gotten married, and he is telling them it's good for you to stay in your betrothal. It's good for you to stay single. You must understand. Again, right there, we're triggered and we say, oh, what about Genesis 2? God said it was not good for man to be alone. Hold on. Understand that these were extremely distressing times for Christians, especially in Corinth, in this city, in this church. You have a, a whole bunch of distress here. You have... Fellow believers, they were causing distress and probably the most stress in this little body of believers as they quarreled over their favorite preacher teachers, as they allowed sexual immorality to go unchecked, as they forced celibacy on their spouses, the marrieds did that, as uh, some in this church also just got married and they, they were getting married for less than good reason and they were getting divorced for absolutely the wrong reasons. Just think of what's going on in this church. Just the... The, we just did communion and focused on their inability to get along. And so you have a lot of distress in this church just coming from fellow believers. And that's pretty sad. But it was happening. And then, because remember he says, in light of the present distress. And then society was causing a lot of distress by threatening this body, if it you know, didn't dump its offensive gospel, if it didn't become more inclusive, if it didn't enculturate, kind of like how America is responding to the church today. So you have the culture that's pressing in and saying, you can't be what you're bigoted. You cannot say these things. You cannot be this way. You must include everyone. Not like they were sitting there trying to exclude people. They're just a body that's trying to worship Jesus and the outside world because it hates the gospel and it isn't included in the worship of God. They get offended by that. So you had society that was causing distress. You had false teachers who were causing distress by going everywhere, on every hillside, every church, every synagogue, wherever the church was meeting at, at Lydia's house, everywhere. False teachers were going in and saying, you don't have the true gospel. You men must get circumcised. Only then will you be truly justified. You have the distress of wolves. 
You have the distress of culture. You have the distress of immature, ding-dong believers. You have the stress of the Jews. They had arrested, beaten, imprisoned, and even killed many Christians. The Jews murdered their own Messiah, and they murdered Christians. Jesus warned his disciples that this would happen. After his ascension, it's going to happen. He, he says, they are going to make you outcasts from the synagogue. So you're going to try to go and preach the gospel to Jews in the synagogues. They're not going to let you in. They're going to throw you out. And he says, there will come a time when they, these Jews who are going to attack you, they think they're offering service to God like they're preserving the truth when they are actually killing you, John 16, 2. Saul, a.k.a. Paul, the man who wrote this prior to his conversion was guilty of this. He was incarcerating and giving approval to the murder of Christians. Stephen, you had unbelievable distress in this time. Rome was causing distress as it increased its persecution of the church. The most Notable and probably all-time cruelest persecutor of Christians became emperor the very same year Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, Nero. That name rings a bell, doesn't it? Mm. MacArthur wrote, That emperor refined torture to a diabolical act, and his name became synonymous with sadistic cruelty. He had Christians sewn up in animal skins and thrown before wild dogs to be torn apart and eaten. They did this alive to them. Other believers were dressed in clothes soaked in wax, tied to trees and set on fire to become human candles for Nero's garden. That combination of those things is the present distress. Mm. Well, all of a sudden, it's probably sounding kind of like a good idea to put some things off for a little bit. Mm? Maybe. In light of these real present distresses, Paul is exhorting the betrothed to consider what's going on around them and to maybe slow down. Maybe don't, you know, push, push, push and rush to get married right now. It's, it's, it's a better idea in light of everything that's going on. It might be better for you to remain as you are in light of these things. And I'll tell you, in light of the real present-day stress and context, what Paul is saying seems reasonable to me. My preference is marriage. I've been married for almost 25 years. In July, it's 25 years. Send us gifts. So my preference is marriage. But I'm telling you what he says here makes sense to me. It's even logical. Let me ask you this. Which mode is more likely to multiply, multiply distress in distressing times, married or single? Which mode? Obviously, married in these distressing times, is, has the potential to multiply distress, to increase it. If a person is married, they have a spouse to be concerned with and maybe children later on. Marriage is already going to be more distressing, even in non-distressing times, because you have more people than yourself to worry about. But now when you look at this context, this isn't rocket science. So in the context of a marriage, if the wife suffers persecution, the husband will suffer distress as he worries about her. And vice versa. And if they have children that are swept up in it, their distress is going to skyrocket because nothing jacks up parents more than harming their children. You know, if somebody wants to hurt me, that's just fine. But if you target my sons, Phil Wick, that's what you get. You don't get mercy from me. I'm very protective of my little brood. Even though if the trouble came, they'd probably throw me out and say, take him. <laughs> and I'd be bold like Paul. No, I wouldn't. I'd probably hide. Think about what Paul is saying. 
the addition of a spouse will increase the potential for distress. Adding children will multiply that even more. But singles, and think of the context with the dangers, but singles only need to be concerned about their self. There's no spouse to worry about if they get drug off to the crucifixion. There's no children to be concerned about if they come knocking on the door, the Romans do, and say, you know, the Roman Gestapo, come with us. Singles only need to be concerned about their self. And it, it would be wrong to say that they don't experience distress. That's wrong because persecution is usually painful. It's certainly scary. They're going to experience distress, but that distress is going to go way up if they have a bunch of other people to worry about, especially those who are closest to them. This is the logic Paul is using. Does that not make sense? You know, persecution is difficult enough for a single person, but the problems and pain are multiplied for one who is married. If Paul had been married, his suffering would have just been magnified by his own worry for his family as he's going off to be beaten or stoned again or maybe even put to death. What do you think is going to be in the back of his mind? It's not going to be his own life. It's going to be like, who's going to take care of my wife? Who's going to take care of my children? Let's use our brains here. What he's saying makes sense. Who's going to take care of them in his absence? Who would have taught his children? Who would have comforted his wife? And this would have been distressing for his family as dad and husband is brutalized for following Christ. Every time Paul had a family, a wife and kids at home, every time he was beaten, every time he was stoned, every time he was shipwrecked, when he was bitten by a darn poisonous snake, when he was in prison time and time again, terror would have revisited that home over and over and over. Children, we need to pray. Your dad has been beaten almost to death for Christ. Yeah, sounds fun. You see, <sighs> Paul's suffering and his practical problems would have increased and the effectiveness of his ministry decreased if he had a family because he would have been very concerned about them the whole time, anytime he was doing anything. Because it was actually dangerous to follow Jesus then and it was even more dangerous to preach Jesus in the Agora or at the Acropolis or anywhere else. You were putting your life in your hands, really in the Lord's hands. Married Christians who go through social turmoil and persecution cannot escape carrying a much heavier load than those who are single. This is a fact. That's John MacArthur. That is a fact. That's not a theory. It's not that, that Paul was trying to dissuade the betrothed from ever getting married. That's not what he's trying to do. He's simply encouraging them to consider these challenges and to count the cost. Because to follow Jesus can cost you everything. To be married, if you're going to enter into marriage, you need to count that cost. The emotional cost, the spiritual cost, the physical cost. You need to be prepared. You need to think through what you're doing and engaging in. And we have a thoughtless culture that doesn't put any thought behind what they're doing today. And so there are liabilities and stresses that come with marriage. There are threats often overlooked, present distresses. In fact, the prevalence of persecution in Paul's day should have stirred consternation and raised some eyebrows in this church. But I think once couples then and today and all throughout history, once couples get into wedding mode, they rarely if ever see the dangers because they get tunnel vision. All they care about now is that date. I've seen this as a wedding DJ. And our present distresses are vastly different from those in the first century, but they're still there. They're not guided by wisdom any longer, but by strong passions and burning passion because they want to get to that date so they can consummate and live their life, especially in this sexually charged culture. 
According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, chapter 2, Paul's fellow laborers in the gospel, Erastus, the treasurer of Corinth, Romans 16, 23. He was actually saved under Paul's preaching when Paul planted the church there. Aristarchus, the Macedonian, Colossians 4.10. And Trophimus, uh, the Ephesians, 2 Tim 4.20. These three amazing gospel-centered, gospel-preaching, gospel-bold preachers were all executed by Nero in 67 AD, right around this time. Let's get married. Do you know who Barsabbas is? He's also called Joseph. He's also called Eustace. It looks like justice, but it's pronounced Eustace. He's mentioned in Acts 1.23, you might recall, two men were put forward to replace Judas Iscariot, Matthias and Barsabbas. Matthias was chosen as the next apostle. Barsabbas went about his way and continued to preach the gospel wherever he went. How about Ananias? Does that name ring a bell? He was the man from Damascus whom the Lord used to restore Paul's sight, to baptize Paul, to commission Paul for ministry. Acts 9, 10 to 19, he and Bersabbas were brutally executed with Erastus and the others by Nero. Point being, the present distress is real. Greco-Roman society was like a powder keg about to explode and rain down fiery, unprecedented persecution on Christians. Nero is at the helm. In a few short years, nearly two-thirds of Rome would burn to the ground and usher in an era of persecution that had not yet been seen. It would be borderline apocalyptic in ferocity and scale. The book of Revelation was written kind of in light of this and other persecution as an encouragement to embattled believers who were suffering the, under the tribulation under one of Nero's successors, a sadistic psychopath called Domitian. Revelation 1, 3, and 9. This is the social climate in Rome and in particular in Corinth. But the betrothed in this congregation were aloof oblivious to what was happening around them, what was brewing. They were not paying attention to their surroundings. They had zero situational awareness. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage without a care or concern like the people in Noah's day just before the flood. Matthew 24, 38. What Paul is saying here in light of all this is should we be thinking about marriage planning right now or maybe getting our affairs in order? That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Does that sound stupid to you? No way. Does that sound like preference or does that sound like preservation? That's not preference, friends. That's love. Get your head out of this marriage game and start thinking about what's going on around you. It won't kill you to put this off. But of course, later he says, if you burn with passion, go through with it. It's not a command. It's apostolic advice. Should we be thinking about wedding planning right now or getting our affairs in order? Verses 27 to 28a, he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. He's bringing clarity to what he's saying. And understand this, when he says, when he says present distresses, they knew what he was talking about. He didn't have to exposit it like I have to for us. In their context, they knew it was dangerous. They knew these things were happening. What Paul does here is he expands on the core principle, remain as you are, that he mentioned in verse 26. He gives two exhortations here. First, he exhorts the married men to remain in their marriages. Second, he exhorts the unmarried men to remain single. The first exhortation is a command. These men must stay married. Why? Because marriage is a lifelong bond. He says, are you bound to a wife? It's a lifelong bond that can be broken only by death or adultery or divorce by the unbelieving spouse who leaves and abandons them. 1 Corinthians 7.39, Matthew 19.9, 1 Corinthians 7.15. 
So the first exhortation he gives to the married men is a command, stay with your wives. You're going to need each other during these times. The second exhortation is not a command. It is a wise judgment. It is good advice. It is apostolic advice in light of the present distress. If you're single, might be a good idea to stay that way and see how these things play out and be prayerful. In verse 28a, Paul wanted to make sure that the singles and betrothed did not view his exhortation as a command not to marry. He's saying if you go ahead and choose to get married, you haven't sinned. It's not a sin to get married. It's not a sin to get married. It's not a sin to stay single. It's not a sin to, to uh, be a betrothed person who's engaged and to kind of hold off on that for a little while to see if Nero somehow dies of natural causes, only to be replaced by somebody worse. J. Mac again, he says, Paul again makes it clear that it is not a sin for single believers to get married as long as it is to another believer. Second Corinthians 6.14, where that's stressed and emphasized, he continues, he says, even those with the gift of singleness do not sin if they get married. It's not like they're forsaking or going against the gift. If they want to get married, then get married. So if you should marry for whatever reason, you have not sinned, he says. The point is that marriage is a legitimate option, but it is good to consider the first option of singleness. And I would add to MacArthur's words, especially in light of that present distress because the whole world was burning against Christ and his people. And it's only going to get worse in the coming years. So in summary, Paul makes a preliminary argument for remaining single through his first point. Marriage can increase distress during distressing times. I would say amen, yes, I believe his advice. I think it's true. And it would be foolish for any single or engaged Christian in any context, whether then or now, to flippantly disregard this piece of apostolic advice because it seems overly opinionated or maybe bleak or not apropos. That just doesn't apply today you still should think about what he's saying. What he says here is not overly opinionated nor bleak. It is sober-minded. It is discerning. It is discernment. This is a quality that, that you just don't see in the church anymore today. Believers are to be the most sober-minded, the most discerning people in society. They have the word of God. They're led by the spirit, not by their flesh. They're, they should always be ready and willing to apply Scripture, even difficult Scripture like 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We also need to remember that, that Christians have not been given a spirit of fear but of self-control in these things. When God saves a Christian, he's, he puts the Holy Spirit in them and he regenerates them and he stays with them. He's their comforter and guide and teacher and revealer in these sorts of things. We have the spirit. We do not have a spirit of fear, meaning we mustn't let potential threats and dangers stop us from pursuing what God has deemed good, including marriage. 2 Timothy 1.7 and Genesis 2.18. There's your text. But we should employ good judgment and always be well prepared. Getting married, and just wrapping up, getting married in the first century seems way less sensible to me than it does today. If you're Christian, I mean, with what Paul is laying out for us here, it, it, you know, I don't know if marriage should be the thing that's in the forefront of our mind if you're living there now. And you've even seen brothers and sisters dragged off and killed like the Nazis with the Jews. That's what was going on. It just doesn't seem very plausible. It doesn't seem very sensible to me to just, let's just focus on that and do that. Un unless you've looked each other in the eyes and said, we're going to die for Christ together. Unless you're cognizant of what's going on. They're present. It doesn't make sense to me to get married at this point. Less sense then than it does today. Why? Because their distresses were different from ours. Believers were, you know, clothed in wax-covered clothing and set ablaze as human candles in some guy's garden. That's unconscionable. And that was happening. 
That's the context. That's the distress part of it. And yet in our context, American Christians are called names. You're a bigot. You're whatever. And, and they lose it. So we're, we're not operating on the same plane here with them. And I'm thankful for that. Aren't you? Aren't you glad someone doesn't come to the door and drag out your children and shoot them through the head because of Jesus? I am. And that's their threat. You see, when Christians got married in the first century, they were, hopefully, they were sober-minded, they were discerning, and they understood, and they were covenanting or agreeing to suffer and die for Christ together as a team because that was a real threat. It was part of the deal. You do realize that if we go through with this and get married that, honey, you need to be ready for it. If they come for me, you're going to need to be able to pray and get through that and go to the little underground church over there at Lydia's house and, and pray with them and, 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 and be quiet. But you need to know they could come and get me. They could get our kids. Well, oh, I understand that, Mike. I understand that. And I'm willing, I'm willing to marry you in spite of it because I would rather be with you when it happens than to be alone. I would rather have you in my life and have these beautiful kids and lose it all in one sweep than to never have it at all. That's what you had. That is sober-mindedness. And right now, you as parents are saying, there is no stinking way I would think like that. You have kids now, and you say, there's no way. There's no way I would offer up my children to the Lord as a sacrifice in that manner because I can't imagine my life without them. Paul's point to you, if that's the way you're thinking, stay single. Don't get involved with somebody like that because that's the cost. Then they're focused on dying together, suffering together as a team today. They are focused on building their best life now. It's an entirely different era, an entirely different mindset. Unless you live in Iran, Sudan, North Korea, China, or any other country that still pulverizes Christ's people. I've heard J-Mac say off the cuff, and I don't have difficulty with what he said, but I've heard him just kind of say it. Well, this is a great time for Christians to get married and have children. And every time I hear him or anyone say that, I'm like, really? I mean, yeah, I understand it's not the first century, but there's still a lot of stuff going on. And right, you know, drag queen hour at the schools. I don't know, man. Are you sure this is a good time? But I think comparatively speaking, yes, I do agree with him. If we're thinking first century and now, well, it makes much more sense today. Today would be a great time for that as opposed to then. Right? This isn't the first century, and I thank God for that. But I also believe single and engaged Christians should consider the times, should count the cost of following Jesus and count the cost of being married. They should construct a strategy that includes private school or homeschool if they plan to have children. If we send our children to Caesar for their education, we shouldn't be surprised when they come home as Romans. Vodi Bakum. 